Okay, and there is the right thumb. That's the most powerful one of the two, isn't it? I think that's correct. Okay, well then I can take the glasses off so that I can't see. Uh, and let's, let me start out, I guess. Uh, it, this is a March 6, 2022 lecture, but I, I really wanted to start out with, um, I'm getting a lot of questions on the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And, uh, and what's going on? I approach the Russian situation with Ezekiel 38. I want to know how does Putin ultimately attack Israel? How does this help him attack Israel? Is how I'm looking at it. And I recognize that he wants that port, uh, that Crimean uh, Jutland, I guess you would call it, peninsula. He wants the Crimea to be a staging point. He needs that in order to, to get into the Middle East. And, and so I'm looking at the fight for Odessa right now. Odessa is an important uh, port city there in that general area. And Moldova, ultimately, he will, he will want to take those. And I think that's what he'll do. I don't believe he, he doesn't have the resources. He's got maybe 200,000 troops. That's about all he's got. The rest are conscripts that are not willing to fight. They are certainly uninterested in, in getting killed in Ukraine. And so that's why you see the abandonment of all of his trucks and vehicles. And he's up against a very fierce resistance uh, with the Ukrainians, they have capability and they're very resourceful and they, there's 50 million of them. There's just no way in the world that he can take all of Ukraine and hold it. He couldn't put in a puppet regime. That, that Whoever his puppet regime would be, would be would be executed within a couple of hours. So there's just no, no chance. So what is he really doing? I guess all to boil it down. He's after Moldova. He's after Odessa. He will eventually withdraw take the separatist territories that he already believes belong to him anyway and allow Ukraine to have three or four or seven-eighths of their country back. That's the only option ultimately that he'll do. He might negotiate to that option, but first he takes Moldova and he takes, uh, or Moldova, I'm not sure how it is, and he takes Odessa when he has, and he can't move his armies at all. He needs railroads and the Ukrainian resistance is destroying the railroad system. So there's just no hope here. He really is, it's been pointed out by many uh, military analysts, he doesn't have a strategy. This isn't the strategy. He doesn't have a plan. He's just wailing away over here. And uh, we'll see how it goes. But ultimately, I think he does get Odessa. I think he does get the fuller control of the Crimean Peninsula. He's got most of it now, if not all of it. But he gets he, he consolidates down in there, and that gives him an opportunity at some point to attack Israel. So anyway, that's just my thoughts. They may not be right. Uh, just how I see it. March the 6th, 2022 lecture discussion number 165 on the books, book, I say book, no, I don't even say books, the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Genesis chapters 1 through 3. Two lectures ago, me, me we, I say we, by, by we, I mean me, I guess, don't I? Uh, we, me, me diverted. Uh, remigrated, be a little bit more accurate uh, verb, I guess, uh, to Genesis 15, which is an incomprehensible chapter. We're never going to know everything that's going on in Genesis 15. It's not possible. Uh, much of it is unknowable. The take me of Genesis 15:9, the behold of Genesis 15:17. That's where the, the fire pot, smoking furnace, and the flaming light are going through. There's a great behold there. We will never understand all of the elements of that. Uh, the, the Dave and I were talking just a few minutes ago about how whenever Christ does something, it just goes everywhere. It's like a, an explosion. You want to think of it that way. You, if you think only one thing happened here, you're way, way off. And you have to recognize that's not how an omniscient mind functions. There's not one thing. There's never one thing. There's many, many things. And we can't even, again, that's why it's so unknowable. So Genesis 15.7, that's probably the preeminent illustration that in 15.9, which can never be fully conceived by mankind or angels. It's the 1 Timothy 3.14.16. It's the greatest mystery. It's the mystery of the incarnation. It's the mystery of the solution to sin. Uh, All of those things are happening in Genesis 15. And And Genesis 15 is laden with the triunity of God, the Elohim, the us, the Genesis 126, 322. That's an unknowable thing, I've said for my whole so-called career. If somebody gets up and says, I'm going to explain the triunity of God to to you today, 
pick up your chairs and throw them at the stage and run out of that church. You cannot explain that. It's unknowable. It's an unknowable truth. And add to that the infinity of God displayed in the take me in the smoking fire pot passing through the animals aside. The flaming light torch. I have a light torch and I have a fire pot furnace and they're both going through these animals. It's incredible what it, what all those means are. In other words, you're not going to know it. You're not. So lower your expectations. That's always a good idea in life. Lower your expectations, but uh, nonetheless, you want to endeavor to persevere towards understanding as much as you can be able to, which is just a very small part. You might think it's magnificent and huge and gigantua, or gig- I don't know, what am I trying to say? Gigantic. There we go. I, I, gargantuan and gigantic became a word because I needed water. But you're not going to get very much of it comparative to who wrote it. The infinite mind of God put this together and we are not going to ever get all the pieces. We get what we can. I played baseball and I played a lot of softball most of my life. And I figured out really fast that I couldn't hit a 102 mile an hour fastball. I hit at my highest peak, maybe I could hit in the 90s. You run up against these guys now throwing 105, 102. I'm never going to hit that. I'm not going to hit a 92-mile-an-hour slider either. I'm just going to get slaughtered up there. And that that's how I approach Scripture. Some things I'm just never going to get. And it's okay. I'm going to take my hacks. I'm going to go up there and swing away. Uh, and I can't prevail. I've played chess grandmasters or computers that are chess grandmaster level. Guess how it goes for me? I get wiped out. I can't prevail against a chess grandmaster. I, I play. Uh, you can play Stockfish 14, which is the best program now, I think, uh, for all computer-generated chess uh, systems, and it wipes you out. No one can do anything against it, and that's how I kind of think about God. I, I'm not going to do well against any of these kinds of things, but I'm going to pull up a chair, and, and I'm going to sit at the table, and I'm going to do what I can do, and. Again, my expectations, I think, are reasonable. That's my plan. Anyway, Genesis 15 is is a representation of a 102-mile-an-hour fastball or 105 and a 95 or 98-mile-an-hour slider, which you just swing at and you don't come close. Uh, that's what, and So humanistically speaking, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to draw that analogy for you. But we should know going in, the task is unthinkable and have respect for it. It's something that is amazing. The fact that we can't understand it is actually indicative, indicative, indicative of who wrote it. Okay, so where did, where did me leave off? I think I've trunc- truncated the, uh, by we I mean me now to just me. I'll just skip all the rest of it. So where did me leave off? becomes an intentionally grammatical error, I guess, doesn't it? So the Grammy police are coming after me, aren't they? Okay. Me left off at Abraham not passing through the animals. Abraham did not pass through the animals in spite of so many that thinks otherwise. And then we had Abraham's horror and great darkness. We can stop right there. Why did Abraham have horror or terror? Sometimes it will be translated as terror. And utter darkness. I got terror or horror and uh, fearfulness and utter darkness. Did Abraham, what, what else has got fear or utter terror and complete darkness? Did he see, did Abraham see, did God let Abraham see the lake of fire, the second death? That's my first question. What did Abraham see ultimately becomes the primary question of all of Genesis 15 from our perspective. What did he see? What evidence did God give him that made Abraham say, I know I'm saved? So part of that is this horror or this terror and utter darkness. When I see utter darkness, I go to the lake of fire. Why does God place this on Abraham? You have to start working that through. Why does this component here? Henry Morris, who you know, I, I have great respect for Henry Morris. He saw the death of Christ here. He's saying that Abraham saw the death of Christ. 
uh, and uh, the price of sin, if you want to think of it that way, the lamb slain, uh, he saw the crucifixion. And if that's true, then the horror and the darkness and all of that brings in the uh, drinking of the cup. It's associated. Matthew 26, 39, Luke 23, 44. So, that's there. That's 15, 12. I'm sorry, that, in, in Genesis 15, 12, Abraham has this Adam-like, Adamic, if you will, deep sleep. Abraham driving away the vultures, the pillar of cloud, the Genesis 1, 31, six-day completion of creation is all in Genesis 15. And that, that Genesis 1.31, that answers many of the questions and generates a multitude of additional questions all at the same time. Here we go again, right? Genesis 1.31 says creation has ended, so that leaves means that only resurrection is now left. If you want to think of it that way, creation has ended and has, and now here comes resurrection. That's what it does, and that's a very important piece of Genesis 15. Because if creation ended on the sixth day, and to repeat, imagine the shock of the angelic realm when they witnessed the revealing of mankind and animals because what did they think up to that point? They thought there was only an angelic realm. And what did God do? Guess what? We have two other realms that you hadn't known about. So all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but I just want you to think of the shock that the angels had, especially the fallen angels, when they revealed, when it was revealed to them that there is a mankind and there is an, there is an animal realm. Living beings. These are living beings. And what are they going to do? They're going to inherit the earth. That, In my opinion, in my position, by my order, the earth was removed from the angelic realm. From Satan specifically. Uh, Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14. So instead of one realm, there's three. And I think the angels were stunned. And I believe that's absolutely obvious. They never thought that was going to come. They had competition. What do you do with this? <clears throat> but I'm, I'm, let me get back on the subject. What becomes prominent, the principal objective, is now that the three realms of living beings, the, I have Nefesh, Ruach, Shayar, Haya, and, and I'm assuming that the angels, and I know it's true because of... Uh, the angels are residents of the new city of Jerusalem, the, the faithful angels. The, the angels have been created ad infinitum as well, into infinity. I ask the question, do the angels have, how complex is the angelic state? How, how complex is the intermediate state? Do the angels have a breath of life? That's how you get eternity. If you're a, a living, that's how you get a, to be a living being. You have the breath of life in you. Do the angels have the breath of the spirit of life? Did God breathe into the angels? And people would say, "Well, no. Breath is part of a lung system." But we know, we know the angels have this incredible, complex capability, and and that's why I keep asking the intermediate state, how complex is it for us? But in any event, no one, I don't believe, will argue that the angels are eternal beings. So I have three groups of eternal beings, uh, angelic, humanity, and, and animal. Actually, I get that order wrong. Angelic, animal, and humanity. So all of that, that's an astonishing display of omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence and omnibenevolence, pure goodness. And when I have all of those put together, those combine into resurrection. Resurrection takes every one of those. So does creation. But in this point, or the point for this, yea, a point, creation has stepped aside at Genesis 1.31, and now resurrection enters the room or rises up, whichever analogy you will want. Hopefully that will make sense as I go along here. And yes, timelessness is the frame of observation. What do I mean by that? God is outside of time. What do I mean by that? We are inside of time. His time is not our time. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His time is not our time. So in our time, we we have this appearance. We think that creation and resurrection are really close together. Uh, they're immediate. One, one comes and then the other one comes. Um, they are not. They are not for us who are subject to time 
the order is angel, animal, mankind for us. Now, that makes no sense. I know that. That's okay. Hang on. I have this lamb slain verse that I mentioned earlier, Revelation 13.8. Christ is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth. And you've heard me say this. The lamb, the lamb slain uh, cannot be dissevered from resurrection. He's the first fruit of the resurrected. So, obviously, being the lamb slain, as soon as that part of his uh, prophetic work, or I'm sorry, his redemptive work has been completed, then what is remaining for him? What's remaining for him is resurrection. So I have the slain, and then I have the resurrection. They go in sequence. But we think they're crushed together, they're immediate, but they're not. He, he was slain before time was instituted. So there's a lot of time from the time that he instituted time. If that made any sense, wait till page 12. When I can't wait. I, can, I wish I could just jump to it. The foundations of the earth obviously are space, energy, matter, time, gravity, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force at minimum. And all of those things form up the foundations of the creation. And time being, being something that is quite significant there. And time, as everyone knows, descends from a primeval, primeval, not primeval, primeval, first consciousness. There has to be a first consciousness in order for time to come into institution. So God's mind and his will and his life is what causes time, if you want to think of it that way. He, he establishes it. He causes time to be instituted. And that's his consciousness doing that. That's where Einstein kind of gets it right. He recognized that time was a function of consciousness. But he thought it was a function of human consciousness. It's not. It's a function of godly consciousness. And we just adapt to it or we just accept it. But it is not a physical property. Time is a mental property. And, and there again, we get to Max Planck at the bottom of everything that we think to find consciousness. All of that, what I just said, that's the introduction to establish the relationship between creation and resurrection. Both are expressions of the character of Christ, which accompanies his omnipotent power. And hopefully that helps you understand the implications of Genesis 1.31. Then God saw, and the name and the word for God in the Hebrew there is the Elohim, the us. Then the us saw, the triune God saw everything, everything that he had made, and behold, it was good very. That's what the Hebrew says. Very good for us non-Hebrew people. Now that behold is amazing because it has the same thing, implications. Why does he say everything that he had made was very good when we had fallen angels. But he does. So what does he mean by that? The goodness of God is, the very good is made known. He is saying, he is demonstrating that he is pure goodness to somebody. Now who is he doing it to? He probably said it away. I suspect that when he said, very good, it's all very good or good very I suspect that was spoken in a very loud voice. I shouldn't say very that many very times. I should have a list for how many times I say very. They actually give you a piece of paper. What to say other than very? They actually do, because it is a often used phrase. So I will try to be less very. Behold, it is good very. That's what he says. Behold. When you see that behold, you know, wow, something's going on here. This, is, this audience isn't confined. This audience is extraordinary, and it must include the angelic realm. I believe he shouted it in a loud voice, and that behold um, proceed, that precedes the very good suggests that I'm correct. In other words, the angels heard him say this. Why does he say this aloud to the angels? On the sixth day, 131, Genesis. Okay? Where are we? Deep sleep. Behold horror and darkness. The vultures. The pillar of cloud because the smoking furnace fire pot and the flaming light. That smoke and light is a pillar of cloud characteristic. 
There's this assurance of salvation that is part of Genesis 15. How can I know I'm saved? And that's given by the heifer, the goat, the ram, the turtle dove, and the pigeon. And what do all of those things mean? And we have the idea of the pigeons and the turtle dove. Were they killed? Were they, they certainly were not cut in two. So what's going on? Why are they different than the other three? And that all comprises, those five all comprise the take me. The heifer, by the five, I mean the heifer, the goat, the ram, the turtle dove, and the pigeon. They, they are the take me. They define the take me, in a sense. Last Sunday, I answered the question, why did, what did Abraham see that made him know that he was given eternal salvation life? And I answered that. And I answered it again already today. I keep answering it. It's amazing. Over and over again. There, and I'll give it to you. I'll just lay it out. I don't like to lay things out. But the only possible thing, the only possible answer to that question of what did Abraham see, the only thing that's available is what? Resurrection. That's what he saw. That would make sense. I just look at myself. If I knew I was going to be resurrected, if I could see me being resurrected, if God takes me out and lets me see myself being resurrected, how assured of my salvation would I be? Very assured. If I even saw my, my, my dog Abigail being resurrected, I would be amazed. That would change me forever. Now, we believe it. And blessed are those who have believed and not seen. That you, you make that application now to Thomas. You're blessed because you have seen me resurrected and you believe. How about the people that have not seen resurrection and they, yet they still believe in resurrection? So you can see where resurrection is a canopy. And, and, and now you all work out what occurred and when. Because Abraham got to see something. He got to see resurrection, in my view. What? Now, but what did he see resurrected? How did he see resurrected? So again, you've got to work that out. Try to list the order and all the meanings. And while you're doing that, I'm going to swerve into the subject of today, which is 153 fish. Because, I mean, obviously that fits into Genesis 15. I mean, we've all known that. John 21.11. People actually said, yay. Boy, are they going to regret that. <laughs> well, well, we're going to shut it down now. <laughs> Here it comes. How can we... How can we make this worse? Well, we can do that really easy. 150. John's final, with 153 fish, or you've heard me say this many times, that's the Apostle John's final overwhelming proof that Jesus Christ is God himself. John 1, 1 through 4, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. He says the proof of that, 153 fish. And it, people have wrestled with this for thousands of years now. And that's fantastic. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how are you suggesting that the 153 fish has contributive relevance to the Genesis 15 revelation? And I, absolutely it does. I'm saying that yes, John would know about the 153 fish, wouldn't he? And he would know where it connects, wouldn't he? And I'm saying that he knew that it connected to Genesis 15. So there's direct pressing relevance here. John's gospel, as I said, hopefully thousands of times, and I gotta keep saying it over and over again, John has a, a specific focus strategy, an almost singular intention, and that being, this being, to list seven incredible actions of Christ so that all who read his gospel, John's gospel, would know that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh, the Word made flesh, the I am that I am of Exodus 3.14. That's what his plan is. That's why he wrote it. Now, it's the Holy Spirit inspired. He is the author in the sense that he is the agency. And the seven, as you know, the seven great proofs of John, as you know, i got to put that down. That's, as you, that's, that's two of those. The first one is the marriage. Now, you would say it's the wedding. But train yourself to say it's the marriage. 
And there's water in there. There's servants. There's pottery. There's vessels. There's the wine. That's the first miracle, they say. That's what they try to say. But I'm going to say it's the first proof. The second proof that God or Christ is God is the nobleman's son. The, the, the same hour element here. The word of God is here. The spoken word, the, the, the fact that there is no proximity. So he's able to cure and heal someone without being next to them. He is not limited by time or space. That's what John is saying. The third one is the paralytic man who had no one to put him into the stirring. Or if the water stirred on the Sabbath day, he had no one to put him in there. And the fourth, of course, is the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, the bread of life, if you want to think of it. Where can we buy the bread of life? Where is the bread of life? The fifth is him walking on water. Why is that a big deal? I mean... Somebody, surely we can, don't call me surely, but we can all figure out that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Of course, now you have to get into water. What is water? Hydrogen and oxygen. How does it liquefy? Where did it come from? How does this water work? Why is he walking on it? I have God walking on water that he made out of oxygen and hydrogen. Gas. And then... uh, and he says, I am the bread of life. So he goes right back where we thought he should be. And then the sixth is the man blind from birth. And then he spits and he, and he has clay. Well, that's Genesis 2-7. And the seventh is the resurrection of Lazarus. Notice how it ends. The last proof is what? Resurrection. That proves that he's God. Obviously, the resurrection of Lazarus would be the seventh. It is the culmination of the seven proofs. John 11.25 defines, defines the order. I am that I am, the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? That's what he does in John 11.25. He kind of sets it all together for you. I am suggesting that Genesis 15, the flaming light in the smoking fire pot furnace, all of that equals resurrection. For today at least recognize that John, the Holy Spirit, selected these seven proofs, and we should now attempt to discover why are these the ones? How do they fit together? Do they have an order? And of course, what? Yeah, they do. They're like this. Each one builds on the other, and they make this fantastic totality. Why these seven? Why this order? Why seven? Are there seven in Genesis 15? I have a heifer, a goat, a ram, a bird, and a bird. How many is that? Five. And then what do I have? I have a smoking fire pot and a flaming light. Oh, look. Seven. Do you think the seven of the Genesis 15 and the seven of the uh, Gospel of John would all work together again? Yes, they would, and they absolutely do. So how complex is this? Well, that's easy. Duh. It's incredibly complex. Each and every one of the seven are the, (coughs) are the design of the omniscient mind of the infinite God of creation. Each and every one, again, detonate in all directions throughout the Bible, especially so in the Old Testament. You find these seven proofs and they're going to be everywhere in the Old Testament. That's why I said it's not a wedding, it's a marriage. Where, how many times do I find marriage in the Old Testament? Christ, the first miracle, he's supposedly the first of his miracles. Of course, uh, again, he's outside of time and we have to think differently. But he wants to make sure that at a marriage ceremony, he has pottery and he has water and he has wine. He ends up walking on water. So you know the walking on water and the water at the at the wedding have to or the marriage. Sorry, I messed up right there. The water at the marriage has have got to go. They explain each other. The seven proofs 
of course, also interconnect to the seven feast days of the Lord. The Passover pattern is the one that I have cited the most because that's the easiest for people to, to grab a hold of. But uh, the rule is, of course, all sevens return to the creation seven. And immediately it is apparent how the pottery and the water and the wine and the servants, the ancient of days, Cana, Joshua 16.8, the fig tree, Nathaniel, all of that re- reflect onto the first day, Genesis 1, 1 through 5. And they also go into that marriage at John and his first proof, John 2. Okay, maybe that's not so easy to see, readily apparent. My advice for those of you who want to take that on while we go forward here, and go forward is a relative term, right? It might appear we're going backwards to some people, but my backwards is really going forward. <laughs> but consider, I would want you to consider Romans 9, 20 through 24. Let me say that again. Romans 9, 20 through 24 and Isaiah 64, 8. That's the potter and the clay. Pottery, whenever you see pottery or vessels, empty vessels, those are always a symbol of something, human beings, for example. And, and you do that, you get that'll start you on John 2, 1 through 10, which again is that first marriage proof that Christ is God. And almost everyone notices John 1, 1 through 5 lines up with Genesis 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word in the beginning. Everybody, so have that on your list also, and that'll help you get going. The point, yea, a point, John wrote Revelation. Revelation reflects Genesis, and therefore likely that the Gospel of John is written also to reflect Genesis and also go into Revelation. He would put all of his stuff together, right? That's what he would do naturally. Now he has the Holy Spirit helping him, not helping him, actually facilitating it. And for us now is how do they all fit together? How does the book of John fit with Revelation? How does Revelation fit with Genesis? How does the Gospel of John fit with with Genesis? Uh, and then we have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He would make everything fit, wouldn't he? It, because to him it's all the same thing. When he's writing, he believes he's writing one thing. We separate it into different things which I think has always been a mistake for the theological uh, inclined. So we've got to figure it out. We've got to figure out how and why. And I do subscribe to the view that the seven undeniable proofs that Christ is the God of creation, the Lord God Almighty himself, they, that, that does follow the Passover week. And I've done lectures on that. I think that's easily obvious. Therefore, the, if, you got, if you say that the Seven proofs of John follow the Passover pattern. The Passover pattern is absolutely, the, the pinnacle of the Passover pattern is the seven days of the creation week. And how do they both end? How does the Passover end? The Passover week end? The crucifixion week? They both end with resurrection. More evidence then that Genesis 15 is going to end with what? A resurrection. What did Abraham see? He saw the ending of Genesis 15. What's the ending of Genesis 15? Resurrection. How is it resurrection is the question. I have a, I have the set of the sixth and the seventh, the smoking fire pot and the flaming light go through the what? Pass through the what? The pieces of what? And they are, they are dead, aren't they? Dead pieces. What does resurrection do? It's got to be, right? Because there's no, 131 ends creation. Can't be creation going on here. What did Abraham see? And that's why we drew in 153 fish, which is not a seventh. 153 fish is the eighth. It's not a seventh. It's an eighth. The eighth proof. John said, okay, I'm going to give you seven. That you, once you see how they all fit together and where they go, you're going to go, wow, that's Christ. Did John have a New Testament? No. Answer no. The answer is no. He, all he had was an Old Testament. So whatever he wrote, he would know would connect to the Old Testament, wouldn't he? 
So all we have to ask is, where do these 153 fish fit in the Old Testament? Obviously, to repeat, I am saying Genesis 15. And I should admit that many academics want the finger of dust, John 8, to be somehow included in all of this. And I agree that the finger in the dust is absolutely amazing. It's ridiculously intermeshed with the Old Testament, as you know. We've covered that, Genesis 2, 7. It's where the finger in the dust go, Exodus 8, 16, and 19. It's the third plague, lice, dust, dust into lice. And it's obvious that the first plague, water into wine, Exodus 6, 14, 25, through 25. That fits with John amazingly, especially the wedding ceremony, right? The marriage, because what happened at the marriage? I had water turned into wine, right? What did I have at the uh, the first plague, Exodus 6, 14 through 25. I had water into blood. Am I saying that wine, wine is a portrait of blood? Yeah. Matthew 26, 27, and 28. He says so. Drink this. This is my what? My blood. So I can see how the wine, the water into wine, the first marriage Proof, if you want to call it the first, the first miracle, I'm going to call it the first marriage proof. That equals that equals the first plague, which is also a miracle, isn't it? So, if you want to say miracle, I'll, I'll grant you a miracle. The first miracle is the same as the first miracle. So, the first miracle of John two and the first miracle of Exodus sixteen, miracle equals miracle. Okay. If you're going to take all that on, good for you. Pack a hundred lunches. 153 fish. That's also nine times 17. That's factors. There's two factors. That may uh, nine and 17. And you could say three, three times three times three, uh, or three times three times 17, if you want. Because the beloved apostle John. He presented the 153 fish as the penultimate proof that Jesus Christ is God himself, the Lord God Almighty of creation. And so therefore, then what he does, once he gets that done, then the 153 fish is immediately connected to what comes next. It's the precursor to what I would call the three questions to Peter. Because Peter is asked three questions. So he has 153 fish. Almost at the very end of his gospel. And then, uh, almost dropped that. I did drop it. Didn't go into my water. It probably will next time. So I will move that out of the way. But, where was I? The 153 is almost at the end of the gospel of John. And what comes after the gospel of John is the three questions to Peter. The and what are the points of those three questions? You know the answer to that. He calls him, uh, they're called the Simon of Jonah. He, he says to them, he says, he calls him Simon of Jonah. So he's bringing in the, the three days and three nights and he's asking three questions. Because the sign of Jonah is three days and three nights and he's asking three questions over and over again to him if you want to think of it that way. And so I have two parts. I have the 153 fish and then I have the three questions. And you want to call them the Jonas. It would be perfectly appropriate. So that's one thing. 153 fish and do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And it has nothing to do with the different Greek words of love. It has nothing to do with that. I know people are saying, I got it all. I've got all these, no, agape and, and uh, Philadelphia. Okay, it's phileo and they, and I got, I got all of that and that's how it works. That's got nothing to do with any of it. Christ uses those words intermittently, not intermittently. He uses those, uh, all three of them. And, and he interchangeably, that's what I wanted to say. And so God interchanges those words, uh, and that's a very important little piece. The significance is not in the word love. The significance is in the word 
are in the fact that he asks him three times. Sign of Jonah is involved here. Anyway, where am I? So there can be no controversy as as to the intricate blinding that is occurring between the 153 and the three questions. Questions. Why do I always leave off the yeses? John, the Holy Spirit, has welded the 153 fish to what Christ ultimately gets out of Peter, which is finally he answers it correctly. He says to God, he says to Christ, you know all things, John 21:17. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know all things. So, so the Apostle John is taking that conversation and he's attaching it to the 153 fish. And what is it? it you know all things, obviously, is talking about the omniscience of Christ. Peter finally says, you are omniscient God. And so now he can be put into service because now he understands the omniscience of Christ. Up to that point, he he was obviously bereft here. And Christ repairs it, gets him to the right place, and now you can be useful. You cannot be useful to Jesus Christ until you understand that he is omniscient God. If you have any other position, you're wasting your time. Okay. So. Now, to the surprise of no one ever, the Apostle John, when he writes the book of Revelation, he says seven times, Christ says seven times in the book of Revelation, I know your works. You know all things. I know your works, he says to the churches. So Revelation 2 7, I'm sorry, Revelation 2 2, 2 8, 2 13, 2 19, 3 1, 3 8, 3 15. He says seven times he's omniscient. Why seven times? Why seven churches? Why seven things? Why seven proofs? Seven things in in Genesis 15. John intends for the readers of the Gospel of John and the readers of the book of Revelation to be certain of the omniscience of Christ. See also John 5.22. Revelation 2.23. John 5.22 is a judge reference where the omniscience has conveyance to the judicial office. In other words, the great white throne judgment. To say it simply, the one who sits on the great white throne, it's Christ, Daniel 7.9, Revelation 20.11. The one who sits on that great white throne, that's the final judgment courtroom, if you will, he's got to be omniscient. He must be omniscient. He must be the one who has written all things in another book. And it says so. He opens up another book and inside that book is what he has written and it's all things. Revelation 12 through 13. How do you write all things? You have to know all things to write all things. And now we are back to Peter. The point is, yay a point. John has attached the 153 fish through the omniscient questions for for Peter into the great white throne. And my most humbler of the humblerest opinions. That's my opinion. Can I defend the position? Well... To begin to do so, I can make the case that Christ gave up his life soul. Because you can't take his life from him. He's got to give it up himself. He gave his life soul up on the 14th of the Passover month. So he did it on the 14th. And then I have the sign of Jonah, which is three days and three nights. And guess what he does on the 17th? Resurrects himself. 153 fish is 9 times 17. In the second month of the 17th day of that month, on that day, the, uh, he resurrects himself. Now we should go to Genesis 7, 11 through 12. In the 600th year, the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, another 17, the ark rested. So on the 17th, he resurrects himself, and on the 17th, the ark rests. What are the odds? The windows of heaven were opened. On that day, the fountains of the great deep were broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. 
And keep in mind the resurrection of Christ, as with the death of Christ, is a judicial event, which is why Genesis 15 is so important to understand. But I'm, I'm leaping ahead of there by miles. Genesis 8.4, the ark rested in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month. Obviously, the 17th, the number 17 is an important number to God. Why? He does two things. How big are those? He rests the ark and he resurrects himself on the 17th. He has chosen to rest the ark and resurrect himself. Nine times 17 equals 153. So the 153, those 153 fish is not an arbitrary number. There's a reason there are 153 fish. Have you ever found yourself discounting these kinds of relationships in Scripture as happenstance, coincidental luck? Then you are woefully misjudging. This is an omniscient mind and he's a mathematical mind. Happenstance, coincidental luck is impossible in the Bible. It's impossible. Omniscience prohibits happenstance, coincidental luck. And yes, I know happenstance, coincidental luck is a triple redundancy. I know that. Don't write me. I thought about shortening it. I really did. I was going to shorten it into a new word. Happenedental luck. But I thought after a while that that had, had that uh, seemed to fall into a tooth repair somehow and I didn't think it would work. But I thought about it. And I liked it. Anyway, Ezekiel 29.3 now rears up, pushes us to the front. And I'm going to read Ezekiel 29.3 so that you see how it does it. Because it's very important to the 153 fish. 29.3 through 6. Okay. Behold, thus says the Lord God. Behold, now I got to behold, so wow. Got to figure out why there's a behold there. Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, a great monster who lies in the midst of his rivers, who has said, My river is my own. I have made it for myself, but I will put hooks in your jaws and cause the fish of your rivers to stick to your scales. I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers and all the fish in your rivers will stick to your scales. I will leave you in the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You shall fall on the open field. You shall not be picked up or gathered. I have given you as food to the beasts of the field and to the birds of the heaven. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know I am the Lord. Okay? How many times is fish in there? The pharaoh of Egypt is both a literal person and a literal country. So that's absolutely the case. They're literal people that actually live. But the pharaoh is also a symbol for the great monster. The Antichrist. The fish of the great monster beast dragon. And the old King James doesn't call it a monster. It says the great dragon. Which is fantastic. And that, you know, is who? That's Satan. So now you start saying, okay, the great monster here is the Antichrist Satan. And I got all these fish that stick to the scales of this monster. And Satan and his seed, the Antichrist, eventually conjoin John 3, 13, 27, Revelation 12, 12, 13 through 4, 3 through 4. So the Antichrist and Satan are kind of a counterfeit Hypostatic union. Look that word up. That is 1 Timothy 3.16. That's the mystery of godliness. But they try to counterfeit it. So they, they join together. Again, John 13.27. Revelation 12.12. Revelation 13.3-4. And as interesting as that is, uh, I can't keep going there in that direction. We, we notice that the fish of Ezekiel 29.4-5, God puts a hook into the jaw of the monster. Now he also puts a hook into the jaw of Magog and Gog, Gog of Magog. So I see him doing these kinds of things. So uh, God puts a hook in the jaw of the monster and causes the fish of the dragon to stick to him. So those who stick to the great beast 
How do you stick to the great beast? Who take his mark. Revelation 4, 19, or 4, 9 through 11. 14, 9 through 11. Those who take the mark of the beast will be doomed. And their bodies were going to be food to the beasts and to the birds. Revelation 19, 17 through 21. That's the supper of the great God. We've mentioned that recently. Ezekiel 29, 3 through 6 is talking about the supper of the great God of Revelation 19, 17 through 21. Does John know about Revelation 19? Well, he wrote it. Do you think he knew about Ezekiel 29, 3 through 5 or 3 through 6? Oh, yeah. He knows. Anyway, those, those fish that stick to the beast, that are stuck to the beast because they take his mark, are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, the lake of great horror and utter darkness. It's, there's nothing but great horror and utter darkness. So now we're back to Genesis 15 and why has Abraham got this great horror and utter darkness? What was he seeing? Is he seeing the death of Christ? Is he seeing the lake of fire? Is he seeing both? Is he seeing all of the great horror and all of the great darkness or the utter darkness? Taking the mark of the, of the great monster dragon is a certain second death. Gotta watch the time here. We should try to limit the discussion to the fish. Ezekiel 29, 4 through 5. The fish of the river are people. They're human souls. There's no question about it. I see the time. Therefore, the 153 fish of John 21, uh, 11 are also symbolic of human souls. And they're being brought and dragged to Christ by the apostles out of the river or out of the lake in this case, out of the water, dragged to shore and given to Christ. So we know that's what we can see that element. I hope you can. Matthew 4.19. Jesus Christ was on the shore. The apostles were in a boat 200 cubits away. Now, a lot of people say it's translated about, but the word in the, is in the Greek is as, as 200 cubits away, cubits away, not 144 cubits, which is why we got all the, because the walls of New Jerusalem are 144 cubits, but 200 cubits, 200 cubits is 300 feet. You can do the math. 144 is 216 feet, so 144 to 216 equals 200 to X, and do the math, you end up with 300 feet. 300 feet is what? That's right. It's a football field. So here we are, superballism, right here. If you get rid of the end zones. Notice that Jesus Christ feeds the apostles with bread and what? Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Bread and what? Fish. Just pointing out that the feeding of the 5,000 intersects with the 153 fish. And it's not happendental luck. It's actually planned. All of this is planned. And you, as you study the Bible, you just have to have that mind sight. This is omniscient planning here. It turns out again, and never is there happendental luck. That 17 is a triangular number. A triangle. Oops. Triangular number. Wow. And all, all, all guys that frame houses, and I have framed so many houses I can't count them anymore. I have so much framing in me. We all know the same thing. We know that the triangular truss is the strongest possible configuration. We understand that. I have I have this system, and I have all this support. Bridge builders likewise understand the, the strength of the triangular geometric shape, the, the three that make one. Seventeenth, I'm sorry, seventeen is also the seventh prime number. And as it so occurs, the sum of the first four prime numbers, 2, 3, 5, and 7, add up to what? 17. Things that numerologists have long analyzed. So so what is a triangular number? Now, this is not going to be easy. Okay, it's going to be really easy. And okay, I'm lying. I'm going to have to. I'll give you the definition. 
and you'll understand immediately. A triangular number is a number such as 3, 6, 10, and 15 that representable by that many dots arranged in rows that form an equilateral triangle, and that equals n times n plus 1 divided by 2. That is a triangular number. And I'm sure that that cleared it all up. Maybe not. The second definition, then, let's hope brings some transparency. Probably won't. A triangular number is obtained by continued summation of the natural numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. So now that everyone, and by everyone I mean nobody, understands triangular numbers, the next step is to, is to explain the fish in the net. Now, n times n plus 1 over 2 is very important. Um, but let me try it this way. Let me make a diagram because everybody likes pictures. So let's try this. Can you see the board? I don't know if you can. It might be in your way, but we're going to try this. If I have a dot or a circle, and I have two other circles, and I say that's one, and this is two, two equals three. Does that make sense? Because I have how many circles? So two, the sum of, of my second row, I have an equilateral triangle, do I not? All sides are equal? So now if I keep going... And I have this. I'm not going to do this very well. And I have four. What's three equal? Oops, I did it wrong. It's really easy because it should be three here. That's where I get confused. Because the other circle goes in. Three equals, I skipped it. Three equals what? Six. There you go. And I can keep going. Uh, I did that wrong. I'm not good at these diagrams. There we go. I do that. Four is going to equal uh, ten, obviously. And if I do all of this down here, then I get seventeen. And they did not. How many I got here? Da 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 da. da. Say I've got seventeen. Just agree with me. That what are all the sums of all the dots that form an equal triangle that has seventeen? Dots on the sides and the bottom. What do you think it is? It is, I'll help you, 153. So the triangular number for 17 happens to be 153. Do you think John knew that? The sum of the dots of the circles uh, is 153. And for those who want to pause the video and draw out a triangular number diagram and, and, and I'll wait for you. Or you can just take 17 times 18 divided by 2, and guess what you're going to get? 153. So you can do it either way. Both the diagram method and the formulaic uh, method will reveal the triangular number. The summation of all the circles, the dots, compromising an equilateral triangle where the sides are 17 is 153. I see the number. Okay, got to hurry now. In addition, obviously, 153 has 17 and 9 as factors. We discussed last Sunday, put it on the board today, and at least introduced it, I hope. 9 is the conclusion of the matter, I said last week. That is the Ezekiel 12, 13, and 14, the last of the single digits. It is the final basic number. And so that is the conclusion. That is the judgment. And 9 has this associative biblical meaning of the final judgment, which means the great white throne. Now, remember, what ends, let's just jump ahead really fast in case I don't get there. What ends Revelation, that's the great white throne, is part of the end. What is part of the end of the Gospel of John? It's 153 fish. What comes first, the, the new city of Jerusalem or the great white throne? The great white throne. So it lines right up perfectly with 153 fish. Okay? Uh, and 17, of course, is 1 plus 7 equals 8. I know you say, wow, how much are we paying this guy? 1 plus 7 equals 8. That's amazing. Give him more money. That's HTRP. Actually, the eighth day is 1 plus 7. And what I mean by that, the numerical structure, the creation seven days are seven 1,000 years. We've talked about that many times. I have seven 1,000-year phases, if you want to think of them that way. Uh, seven 1,000-year divisions. That's Psalm 94, Revelation 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 2 Peter 3, 8, all says we have seven 1,000-year divisions.
the visions. Okay? And at the conclusion of the seventh 1,000 year, the millennial kingdom, at the conclusion of that is the great white throne judgment, the second death, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And that is the eighth day. Comes after the seventh day. Again, amazing. I should add that the second death has no power over those in the first resurrection. Says so, Revelation 26. The second death cannot affect those in the first resurrection. The first resurrection has five phases. There's five stones that, that David picked up to throw at Goliath, right? So what is, why is there five phases of the first resurrection? Why is there five stones? First resurrection has five phases. The first fruits, that's Christ himself. The second is the abduction of the bride. That's the rapture of the church. The third is the two witnesses. The fourth is the 75-day interval, Daniel 12.2. The fifth is the tribulationally, the ones saved in the tribulation. The ones that, that are in the tribulation that are saved. And I probably need to say this really fast. I don't have time. The millennial saints and those who are alive at the abduction of the bride um, some commentators reject the two witnesses. They take the two witnesses out of the rejection, I'm sorry, of the resurrection of the five phases. And they add the millennial saints because the millennial saints um, are similar to the abduction of the church. I won't explain that today. That's you, you, they use the rationale of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58 as rationale. And here's where I say, hi, Sherry. And Sherry asked me this question, and that's all I'm giving you today. That will make her mad. Okay, where was I? Uh, the shadow, only the shadow. The point is, is there a point? How small is a point? It's infinitely small, right? Can I even see a point? Is, there, is a point nothingness? It can't be because there is no such thing as nothingness. There's only somethingness. The point, that which is subsequent to the end of the seventh day is the eighth day. Applause. That's the eternal state, the restoration of all things, the infinite state. And now you know this, but I'm going to, that is how infinity, now they don't do it this way now, it kind of looks like a fish now. Oh wait. But infinity originally was a sideways eight because there was a connotation of the eight having infinity or resurrection to an eternal infinite life. The sideways eight was a symbol for eternity because of a Roman, uh, the, uh, a thousand in Roman numerals is considered uncountable things. And you can see how that, if you look that up, you look up the C and the one in the C, you'll see it has a shape of an eight. And that happened uh, in ancient times. So eight always has had, or many times at least, has had this connotation of infinity. Alongside of all of that is the seven plus ten, the seven being perfect, the ten being perfect order. Um, so we have all those elements. I have the 153. I have the 17. I have the 17 times 9. John chose to resolve his gospel with 153 fish and the omniscience of Christ. That's what he chose to do. John then selected the great white throne judgment to conclude the matter of revelation. And so we have this. That's the great white throne is the it is finished aspect of the seventh day. And then we have the all things made renewed as the final end of the Seventh day, and, and we go to the new city of Jerusalem, the river of life, the tree of life, Revelation 22, 1 through 2, and Revelation 22, 14. I submitted as a kind of inferred, John knew what he was doing. He concluded his gospel, and he concluded Revelation with 153 fish and omniscience. Great white throne. 153 fish and great white throne. If you want to think of it that way. Again, it's beyond obvious that to preside over the great white throne, Christ's omniscience is a prerequisite. It is the ultimate qualification. It is the only qualification. You must have omniscience to be an over, sitting on the great white throne. And the ones who enter the gate of the city, the blessed who have washed white robes, that's what Revelation 22.14 actually means, and says <coughs> they have washed white robes. They are, these are the, the ones who believed God, who believe what Jesus Christ says. They believe Christ was resurrection. Uh, and they believe that He is the resurrection and He is the life. So those are the 17 times 9. The, the eighth day, the fish, the seven plus one, the, perf the perfected people, uh, are the 153 fish. Hebrews 12.23. Okay. 
Lastly, what was Abraham's contribution of free will in Genesis 15? Is the Bible the template for the new city of Jerusalem, a finite book, finite in, in, from a human perspective? It looks finite to us, but it contains infinity. That's Catherine's question. Hi, Catherine. Call Sherry. I'm not answering your question today either. Here's my other question. Is there only infinity? We know there's no nothingness. There's only somethingness. And somethingness is what? Who is somethingness? Somethingness is a person. Is there only infinity? Is there only eight? What is the difference between the hell of the evil rich Pharisee, Luke 16:24 through 31, and the place of imprisonment of the fallen angels, Revelation 9, Jude 6, and Genesis 6? Hi, Mindy. Not answering your question either. Gave you some information, though. All three of you. Why did Christ empty paradise, or you would call Abraham's bosom? Why did he empty it? How did he empty it? Who saw him empty it? How close is the proximity of Abraham's bosom and Revelation 9? Jude 6, Genesis 6. Can someone please make sense of the five resurrections and the first resurrection? No, not today, Sherry. Who drove off the vultures? Was it Abraham? It looks like it's Abraham, but how could he drive off vultures? How many vultures were there? Why are there vultures? What do they mean? How do they portray Christ? Do they portray Christ? Some people are arguing with me already on that. We will find out. Will we ever return to why all the angels were to watch the slaughter of the apostles? Yeah. Why do angels rejoice when one sinner repents? Luke 15.10, the parable of the lost coin. What does that have to do with the angels rejoicing? Because he puts the parable of the lost coin with the angels rejoicing. Why do they rejoice? Which angels do rejoice? Are there other angels that do not rejoice, Mindy? Where are they? How did they get there? Why are they there? Have we solved the mystery of the dust? Oh, no. We solved any mysteries. No, why not? All we can get is a little bit of a small thing. Is the new city of Jerusalem multidimensional? Well, we'll see. Call that good.